Some uh, weeks back on the program, we had the pleasure of speaking with Joe Rubin, investigative journalist. We, we like investigative journalists. We think that this is a, a valuable service being provided to all of us by people willing to go out and dig. And uh, Joe had quite a uh, interesting background we didn't get a chance to talk about last time he was here, being that he has worked for NPR, that he has worked for the Center for Investigative Reporting, he has worked for Frontline, and we're sure in the middle of that there's some stories to tell, so we've asked him back to tell some stories. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Joe Rubin. Hey, I'm honored, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, I, if there's something else small I can add beyond water meters, that's... I'm, <laughs> Glad to do that. Well, you know, water meters are certainly a hot local topic, but when working for NPR and the Center for Investigative Reporting, I'm sure you were you had bigger fish to fry, and we're over in Europe, and and let's let's talk about some of those stories. Yeah, well, um, you know, I my background is I I, I I I was one of the first sort of international video journalists, and what that means is, you know, this this you know now we're in the era of of Twitter and Facebook and. Instagram and all that, but this was this was back in the era when high quality small video cameras were a new thing. And, what year? Uh, we're talking, you know, like well, for example, like in uh, in 1999, 2000, when the when Serbia was still under the dictate the Milosevic dictatorship, I went there for the winter and I spent the winter hanging out with uh, students who were trying to democratically overthrow the Milosevic regime by mounting a bunch of protests. So, you know, I took my, you know, very small camera and, you know, in interviewed people in, in, in Serbia about what it was like, you know, people had kind of told the story of, of ethnic cleansing and what was happening in Sarajevo and Bosnia and they had really demonized Serbia. But there was another kind of really great civil society that was left behind in the city of Belgrade. And so I, I told that story, and that was a, a fantastic experience. I went there for, you know, Nightline, back when it was a great show with Ted Koppel. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that was a great that was a great opportunity. I, I, you know, I just was talking about this with one of the students who was involved in that over there, and uh, I'm going to put that, uh, you know, when it, by, by the time this airs, um, which I know is going to be shortly, I'm going to try to put that online for, for folks, that report, so they can watch oh, my, one of my first uh, video journalist reports for Nightline. Good. Yeah. Did you get a chance to get into Sarajevo? Because I know that was some pretty grim conditions when they were under siege. Well, so I became a little bit of a, uh, a Balkanophile um, after mm -hmm. that. And so I, I did several documentaries. Um, I, I did another documentary about young people you know, who had come through the siege of Sarajevo. And then I did an investigative documentary for PBS Frontline looking at why the two uh, biggest war criminals there, Ratko Mladic and Radovan Kerdic, had been spent 10 years on the lam, the two most wanted men in the world, and, and why they had been able to evade justice. What'd you conclude? I mean, first of all, I mean, it was really fascinating. I, I went to The Hague in the Netherlands and interviewed the chief prosecutor there and just talked about her frustrations. But we pretty much followed the trail of where, where it was known that they were hiding, first in Bosnia and then, and then, um, and then more definitively in Belgrade. Talked to someone who was, a, who was a member of the intelligence service in Serbia who said they had, a, you know, they had tracked Mladic's whereabouts and then that they had got shut down by, by the government at the, t at the time. It was definitely a window into why it was taking so long. Since then, you know, they both they both were arrested and, and, and brought to justice. So that that's a good thing. Well, I can't say as I'm up on the conflict that took place in the Balkans, but I know a Croatian friend of mine whose house I think was trashed at one point by the Serbs when they were in Croatia and had no love of Milosevic, um, basically looked at it. Well, first of all, he, he said, well, they poisoned him. They killed him when he was in custody. I don't know if you have any, any thought on that. 
But uh, he said that, you know, what they did there in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, was a lot of chicanery with the World Bank and loaning money. And he, he had a very cynical view about, well, the CIA and the United States government and what they do to get people in debt to then go in and, and take over their assets. I don't know what your, what your thoughts are well, on that. Well, specifically, what was he saying? We was he talking about the post like Milosevic era or the breakup of the Yugoslavia? Well, I, 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 I can't say that I recall exactly how he described it. I, I need to sit down with him more fully to get to get schooled in this matter. But I, I think his feeling was that uh, Milosevic sort of gave the finger to the world afterwards about the debts they claimed that were still owed. And that had a lot to do with why he was being uh, demonized. And, and again, this is a guy that had no love of Milosevic. I don't know. I'm, I'm just not expert enough to speak about, about okay. that. But okay. what I will say is that I was in inside Serbia when it was a broken state yeah. and when the unemployment rate was astronomical, where, where corruption was insane, where people who were wanted war criminals were living a regal life in, and being glorified. So it was not a great situation. And so it, international politics is always complicated, but I certainly wouldn't be someone who would say, oh, Milosevic was a great guy and he should have stayed in power. He was, he was one, of the, you know, one of the bad dudes of the 20th century, no question about it. Frontline, what did, you, what, did you, what did you get involved with when you were uh, associated with them? So the, the, the war criminal documentary was for them. Okay. Um, I, was, uh, I did a documentary. Um, this was when there was kind of two, there was, a, there was a occasional part of Frontline, which was called Frontline World. So this was more look, doing international uh, uh, journalism. I went to Sri Lanka and I looked at the civil war there. Um, this was a really long uh, a civil, civil war and what, what, what life was like in Colombo, Sri Lanka. At the time, um, I did a, a story about the political economics of coffee. Okay. I went to Guatemala and Mexico. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, and they had a really loyal audience of people who really loved international news. And so it was, uh, it was kind of an influential show. And then, after I had two kids, and it was maybe not such a great idea to be running off to really war-torn countries, I created a, a, a webcam program. And I interviewed people all over the world over Skype. And, you know, intercutting photographs and video. And that was, now that that's kind of, you see that a lot. But I was one of the first people who did that. And then that, I won a couple of Webby Awards, which is like, you know, the best of the internet yeah. for, for doing something like that. So that was really interesting. And it was kind of an interesting experience because I would interview people at all hours because of the time difference. So I'd come out of the, our studios in Berkeley, mm -hmm. you know, having talked to someone, in, you know, in Afghanistan. And it would be like, they were in the middle of a war and I'd talk to them and it seemed so intense. And I'd be like, oh, I'm in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> it was different than being there. Wow. But it was cool to use technology that way. Did you ever cross paths with Danny Schechter? We had him on the show so many years ago, and he was a great guy. I've been meaning to get him back ever since, but he passed away. Yeah, yes. I've met Danny Schechter um, and, and his partner, Rory O'Connor, his, his, his working partner, Rory O'Connor. Um, you know, back when I was just coming up in New York City um, do, doing this stuff, I was begging them for a job. Uh, and, you know, because he started a show called Rights and Wrongs, which looked at um, uh, human rights violations around the world, particularly South Africa. And, you know, he was just doing great stuff. And, um, and I grew up in Boston, too. Um, you may catch that accent a little bit. And <laughs> so Danny, Danny's from Boston. He had a segment on WBCN uh, ra radio for a long time. Uh, you know, t t telling, you know, kind of a alternative n news perspe perspective. And, and he was great and, and someone who's really missed and was a real inspiration. Joe, I understand you got involved in some of the controversies over nuclear plants, uh, Diablo Canyon and Fukushima both. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about those? Well, um, I, for a while, was the environmental reporter at Capitol Public Radio. 
And my first assignment ever out the door was like, here's a tape recorder, go to and go to a hearing on the state capitol about Fukushima. Fukushima had just happened. Yeah. And you know, do turn around a thirty second story about reaction in, in California. And I there was this guy there, Sam Blakesley, he was a senator from um, San Luis Obispo. And he was talking about how there were some of the similar seismic conditions around the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And I was fascinated by him because he was a senator. He's also a seismologist. He's like the only one in the country who's like in politics oh. and like studied all, and actually studied all this stuff. And so I came back and said, there's much more there. And they said, you're crazy. <laughs> so I ended up then doing a partnership with the Center for Investigative Reporting and PBS. And we did, um, we did a documentary about just how safe nuclear power is here in California and around the country. Well, it does make you wonder whether they shouldn't be putting nuclear plants in non-seismic active zones when you see what happened at Fukushima with a nine-point whatever it was earthquake. Yeah, it's a really important issue. And just to explain it a little bit more, I mean, the issue around Diablo Canyon is it's always been controversial. You know, they, they built it initially without understanding the seismic conditions. Then they understood more of them and had to spend billions to upgrade the plant. Yeah. Subsequently, there's a seismologist there who discovered another earthquake fault called the Shoreline Fault, which runs right underneath the plant. Hmm. And so for this documentary for the Center for Investigative Reporting and PBS, we spoke to her and just got a handle on, well, how serious could an earthquake which happened right underneath the plant be? PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, which owns Diablo Canyon, says that that, that earthquake would it would be limited because the faults are segmented they don't connect to the bigger fault lines around there miss hardebeck the geologist for the U united states geological survey says no she thinks that they actually could connect so that's the fukushima scenario where you have earthquakes rupturing on multiple faults and then destroying a nuclear power plant just i mean not to give people nightmares so that that's the, that's the serious you know the potentially serious issue now, even if that's true, you know, it's possible that the, the plant could live its life and then there still might not be a big earthquake there for hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands of years. Sure, sure. But it's troubling. So subsequent to that, I was fortunate I got this fellowship to actually go to Japan to look at how renewable energy, because all of a sudden they were screwed because they had a huge portion of, of nuclear power that they took offline because they were scared um, and they had to you know, import really expensive oil. And I, so I was looking at renewable energy and I also got to go to Fukushima to look and, and I went on a tour of this ruined plant. How which, bad is it is my question. In all sincerity, I have to say that if whether you think nuclear power is like awesome or you think you're scared by it you have to consider what happens in places like fukushima and chernobyl sure because beyond the plant which i'll get to in a moment just driving to the plant is the weirdest experience because it's like pompeii you're driving through all these like super nice japanese towns and they're just empty because there's what's called an exclusion zone right and it's like i mean if you imagine like you know oh let's just evacuate you know every everything between here and davis that's mm -hmm. pretty much what it is it's like you know 20 kilometers all the way around the plant. And so that's a really serious thing to have happen for, you know, hundreds of years in a small country like Japan. Are they anticipating it remaining unoccupied for hundreds of years? 
Some of it, yes. And I know that some of the, the radiation is dissipating, so some people may be able to come, come back sooner. But in Chernobyl, like around there, there's definitely places that are going to be no-go zones for centuries. And I know the same is true of, of Fukushima. Just how much of that area, I don't know. But to have any large swath of land which is unoccupiable for a long period of time is sobering. The plan itself, that's like a totally weird experience. I mean, you get in one of these spacesuits, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they take your radiation level before and after, mm-hmm. and then you see all these people who are trying to decam- decontaminate the place. And then they, we actually went up on reactor four. So you like this, you're in this this reactor which has exploded, and like you're in this open air, like looking out over it, and you can see. The, um, the reactor pool where all the, the spent rods are, are sitting. And it's just a very weird experience right there on the ocean, you know. On one hand, I'm sure if you were going there, Doug, you'd think, oh, my God, did I just give myself cancer? What, <laughs> what, what have I done? I've, I've just exposed myself to that radiation. Then you see the Japanese workers who are coming there day after day, and you realize, well, this I'm just a tourist. I'm a nuclear tourist. And mm-hmm. these folks are here, and they're really cleaning up the mess. Wow. So I don't know. I gotta say, you know, wind, solar, you don't have quite the uh, quite the risks there. So it seems like a seems like a safer investment. I don't know, you know, you don't get the bigger as big a bang for your buck. I know. You're not familiar with some of the shows we've done here in the past. We we are not anti-nuclear on this program, but I I do freely admit the entire nuclear program. I'd say of the whole world has been an extension of the military and 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 all that that means and the way that shortcuts are taken the way there's no accountability in a way that they just don't they don't really do it the right way i think there's great potential for it and i don't know how we're going to get by without right. well, it well the military does some cool stuff i mean look at these drones <laughs> i mean i know that's like they're disturbing too but it's like all of a sudden for 300 bucks you can like t- get a drone that like flies over your neighborhood and shoots hd video it's yeah it's insane. We, we, yeah thank, when you talk thank about you, yeah. u.s military as a filmmaker I'm kind of like right on, you know, those are great tools. But as a, you know, as a civilian, it raises some questions. Boy, do they. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I think there's one right over there, Doug. No, I'm just kidding. And do uh, you know anything about San Onofre? I mean, when I used to go to med school down in Southern California, you drove by this this giant couple of domes on the seacoast down there, and it seemed like, the, seemed like there weren't any problems with it, and now it's shut down permanently. You have any insight? I should say, we didn't study extensively San Onofre when I did this report for the Center for Investigative Reporting. We looked more at Diablo Canyon. But San Onofre, like a lot of plants around the country, is an aging nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. And so what happened there was they did a $500 million upgrade and it didn't work. It was like the the wrong. Uh, it was. I yeah. can't even remember what 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 part of the plan it was. Was because it's been a couple of years now. But it was like they 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 put it online and it started to fail. <laughs> and so they were faced with this like tremendous economic decision. Did we redo the whole thing? Mm-hmm. And and they decided that you know with all of the issues that people have brought. I think I then this is somewhat conjecture over the years of like a big population around the plant. The fact that it was aging to begin with. They decided to permanently, you know, mothball the plant, similar to, you know, we have a mothball plant a few miles from here, of course. Yes. and Which uh, is a unique history. Yes, I know. Rancho Seco. Yeah, I'm not sure closing that plant was a smart idea. After talking, as I did with some of the engineers that worked out there, but that's probably a story for another day. Sure. Ed Smeloff engineered an election during a very off, off uh, election season and managed to just squeak it by. And I just wonder if it had been held during a larger turnout general election, it would have turned out the same way. I mean, we may never know. Right. Well, it was the wake of Three Mile Island and the wake of Chernobyl, right? 
No, well, maybe just Three Mile Island. When, what year was it? Uh, it was back in, gosh, I'm thinking like early 80s. Yeah. But it was the only nuclear power plant that was ever closed down by, by, pop, by, by vote popular, to the public. By voters, yes. yeah. Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a great distinction for Sacramento, but that, that's, that's, just, that's just me. Yeah. Although um, a lot of the kind of projections of, oh, we're going to have the highest utility rates in the, in the country and it's going to be terrible, I think hasn't, haven't, haven't played out. I mean, I, SMUD has some of the lower rates. They've done you know, these great shade tree programs and they have a big renewable portfolio. In a lot of ways, they're in better shape than PG&E. All right, we got about five minutes left. Joe, let's talk about something that we have raved and raved about on this program. As a physician, I am appalled at what we do with um, animals and raising animals and giving them antibiotics, uh, n- not because they need to treat a disease, but because it acts as a growth factor for the most part. And apparently, I guess you've, you've been on this story for, uh, for PRI and KQED. That's right. Yeah, last year... There was a bill, and you're much more expert on this than I am, but there's a lot of scientific evidence that shows that the overuse of antibiotics, primarily as a growth promoter, is creating you know, serious antibiotic resistance that's crossing over in, into people. Yeah. And there was a, there was a bill by uh, Assemblyman Mullen from San Francisco that was kind of a mirror image of one that, was, that Senator Feinstein, Senator Dianne Feinstein, has been trying to pass in, this, in, the, in the U.S. Senate. And he put that up, um, and then there was a counter bill um, by Senator Jerry Hill, which was kind of, which was which was industry backed. Sure, watered down. Yeah, totally watered down. Yeah. And so I was fascinated by this debate, and I followed it as it went through committee. And the the more reform minded bill just got killed. The people on on the uh, the assembly agricultural committee were just you know saying it was you know it was a radical idea. There's no way that they could possibly support this, and it just got absolutely no support. It, it, it's and it's such a lie. It's it's uh, such a lie. Their, you know, you looked at their contributions from mm-hmm. the ag industry leading up to the vote, mm-hmm. and they were just getting you know tens of thousands of dollars per politician mm-hmm. from either the pharmaceutical industry, the, um, you know, the kind of ag veterinary industry, or directly from, from, from big meat companies um, or big, big meat producers. That's not illegal, but it definitely is troubling. It damn well ought to be illegal. I mean, as a physician, it's emphasized, you know, when you take it, when you, when you study infectious diseases and you learn how to treat people that are sick and they have, you know, bacterial infections and the like, it's stressed that you have to be cautious in your use of antimicrobial agents because resistance develops. So <laughs> people are surprised to find, in fact, doctors, almost every so, doctor. So wait, there's, there's a kind of silver lining in the story. It's kind of, an, it's kind of a, a great story. So this passes nearly unanimously, both in the Assembly and the Senate, the, 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 the total industry-backed bill. bill. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's presumed that Jerry Brown is going to sign it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm one of those reporters where everyone goes right and I go left. And I just thought it was an interesting issue. And I was covering this, this thing. No one else was covering it. Some people were saying, well, you know, this is like a bill that went nowhere. Why, why is this even important? But I just thought the backstory was, 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 was actually important. And the issue of antibiotic resistance is overall a big national issue. It's basic biology. If all the guts of, of pigs and chickens and, and, and cattle are filled with antibiotic, you're going to breed antibiotic resistance like a factory. And Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, vetoed 
the bill. He Good for him. He essentially said, nice try. This is a serious issue. I'm concerned about it. I mean, I understand that he's personally concerned about it, that one of his concerns is that he could wind up in the hospital, like a lot of people these days, and get an antibiotic-resistant staph infection or, or some other terrible infection. You know, women women are, are getting a tremendous amount of bladder infections or urinary tract infections um, because of, 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 of chicken that, that, that's not, you know, that, that has salmonella. Well, I have mixed feelings about salmonella because every time they bring up the word, they act like it's a terrible, terrible thing and it's going to cause disease. And I, I don't think it's that cut and dried. But I think if you want to get a Pulitzer Prize in the future, Joe, you should actually track how it is when you can. Well, eight, I definitely want to get a Pulitzer Prize. Well, okay, Just here, tell me. I'm listening. I'm listening. Here's, here's how you do here. it. How, how do, do I do it? it? Okay. Yeah. Here's how you do it. I got my notebook out. All you got to do is track the pathogens that have been antibiotic resistance and bred in these animal breeding facilities and track them into human beings and find people that were injured, people that died directly because of these. And, and it's like, this is an area that's very gray. They talk about, well, you know, we can't really establish this is what it's from and this and that. It, it has to be. It simply has to be. But that's where the science is now. That's what. Well, it, that's it, what they're. That time. That's what they're actually. They are. They are. Did, there did, are people who are doing that. Do you know what percent of antibiotics in this country, uh, rather than being used for people, go right into animal feed? I do, as a matter of fact. It's around eighty percent. Exactly right. It's eighty percent. It is that is that is that is a, a a scandal of epic proportions. Yes. Yeah. One of my pet peeves is that the advocates who say this isn't a big deal, they say things like, "Well, you know, those don't. We're not giving medically important antibiotics to." animals and that's a misleading term that's, that's not true that's, that's it's just not true it's exactly not true. if you talk to infectious disease specialist they'll say that too that's not true that's, yeah it's just a fl just flat out not you true. know we all need penicillin we all need amoxicillin and we these are these are these are antibiotics that are just you know given in moss to livestock every tool of an antibiotic we need to have in the tool drawer we need all of them and you know when you go and you see a, a, a cattle chow with three percent tetracycline on the label you're just like wow yeah this is a bad idea the other interesting thing about this topic is that the market is just way ahead of the politics i think the politics continues to be in the back pockets to a certain extent of industry but you know go you we you and i can go after this we can get a nice burger at carl's jr without antibiotics or we can go over to trader joe's and most of their meat now doesn't have antibiotics and they and they proudly proclaim that right so you're seeing it more and more in a, in a mainstream level you can go to walmart and buy antibiotic free chicken good we should the europeans don't want our meat full of antibiotics and steroids and and they have every reason to to, to feel that way you know purdue i talked to the the head of, of food safety at purdue who clearly he thinks this is a serious issue and 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 they have made a lot of strides to make their poultry a lot safer and they're introducing more and more antibiotic free brands all the time. So I think the market is way ahead of the politics on this. But it'll be interesting to see in California, now that Jerry Brown kind of slapped this bill on the back of the, of, of the wrist and said, you know, try again, these same two bills are competing again in the legislature. So it'll be interesting to see if we get something which really sets a national standard. Track down the disease from the animal, feedlot, to the hospital and, and, and verify with these people that are doing the research that this is happening and there's a Pulitzer Prize in it. That's a lot of work. You guarantee a Pulitzer Prize? <laughs> well, I can't guarantee it, but I think there's one in it. <laughs> well, I don't know if I personally could track down, but I'd love to talk to the scientists who are doing just that. Do it. Okay, good. 
We've been speaking with investigative journalist Joe Rubin. It's always a pleasure, Joe. And, uh, you know, I, I'm serious. Go, go dig into this stuff. And when you find out about it, come back and tell us first. How's Great. that? Okay, terrific. No, thanks. Seriously, it's, 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 it's a good kernel to pick up. I agree. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 